Hey, it's Eric Hulkerin, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. On this episode, we're talking to Malachi Barrett. He is a political reporter for MLive, and we, of course, will be talking about election politics. If you bring up polls to anyone involved uh, in politics, and especially on the Republican side, they'll point to how the polls were wrong in 2016. There was only one pollster in, in the state that predicted Trump would win Michigan. I hope you dig the episode. It starts in just a sec. As I said, today's guest is Malachi Barrett. He reports on politics for MLive. You can find him on Twitter with one of the greatest handles of all time as Polar Barrett. And as always, my co-host, John Heiner, Vice President of Content, back from vacation and fully rested. It is good to be back. I am (laughs) very smoothed out. It's good to be back from vacation. It was a great vacation. Summertime in northern Michigan. Everything is normal. Nothing is weird. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, But, you know, Michigan still came through. Lots of sunshine. I was up in uh, Tawas and Oscoda area. The lake is beautiful. And it's great summer. Michigan's fantastic. And so got to use it while we can, right? Absolutely. We're recording this on Tuesday, August 4th, which is, of course, primary election day in Michigan. And... uh, you know, I'd almost forgotten there's an election coming up this year. Um, lots going on. And today we're going to be joined by Malachi Barrett from our statewide team. He's a political reporter. Uh, he covers uh, higher level politics, including the presidential election. And uh, there's a lot going on. Malachi, welcome. Thanks for joining us today to talk politics. Eric, John, thanks for having me. I'm excited. There's a lot going on. This is an interesting time for Michigan and the world. So we have a lot to talk about today. Today is primary election day. It's a lot of local races, community races, statewide stuff, congressional uh, primaries. Obviously, it's not the presidential level, but that's obviously uh, the elephant in the room, and well, the elephant and the donkey in the room. But it's it's all out there lurking in the background, and there is a lot going on with the campaigns. I mean, we don't have to say it, but I will. The 10,700 votes in 2016 in Michigan. Um, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan combined, you know, a couple percentage points that made the difference for Trump. And, um, you know, normally we see uh, just the fire hose of advertising, TV ads, all kinds of uh, campaign related stuff. And some interesting articles that have, uh, including one by you, uh, that there's been a little bit of a lull, uh, especially with the Trump campaign in Michigan and people, perhaps because they're outside playing golf and traveling like I did last week aren't noticing, you know, watching their TVs too much right now, but there has been a lull and there's some interesting things happening behind the scenes with that. So you wrote a great piece on that. Why don't you, uh, just for the sake of our listeners, give us some of the perspectives that are unfolding behind the scenes with the presidential campaign. Cause as we know, just because it's quiet doesn't mean that the uh, storm is not coming. Uh, so this this might actually be nice for Michiganders who have been kind of hit with a deluge of advertising since last year. Um, going back through the Democratic primary, it's been pretty active on our TV screens and phone screens and any other kind of screen that you might have. Uh, here in Michigan, Michael Bloomberg spent a lot of money earlier in the year before he dropped out of the race. But here uh, in July and into August, uh, we've seen a slow drop off in the amount of money being spent by Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden to a lesser extent. He's been ramping up a little bit more. But the the interesting thing last week, we found out that uh, the president is pulling back his advertising in Michigan and a lot of other states as they kind of hit the reset button. 
the Trump campaign has a new campaign manager, so they're trying to figure out their national strategy and their their battleground map. There's a lot of ways to get to 270 votes. Michigan was a really important piece of that, as you noted, John. Uh, last time around, our, our 16 electoral votes, uh, you know, played a huge role in the president being able to ascend to the White House. And so we're we're still going to be a top target. But as of right now, the president's looking to other states, uh, primarily in the South, areas that he needs to hang on to. Uh, before he can start to look to battleground states. And some of the experts I talked to said, you know, it, it makes sense. Uh, Michigan is going to be in play. It's going to be on the map a little bit later in the year. But right now the campaign needs to find out, you know, where it needs to make the investments to hang on to those states that should be red. Michigan flipping was a surprise. Uh, it's going to be a tough fight. But right now the Trump campaign needs to kind of solidify the states that it should win those red states that have been reliably Republican voting. But it's kind of staggering how much money has been spent on political advertisements here in Michigan. Uh, already, the two candidates have outspent what the 2016 candidates spent. Uh, Donald Trump has spent more in Michigan by this point than he did last time around. Uh, Joe Biden has spent like $2 million more than Hillary Clinton did in Michigan in 2016. And the Trump campaign has another $11 million in television ads reserved between now and November. So they're, you know, hitting the reset button. They're, they're pushing the brakes here on ads in Michigan for the next month or so as they figure out their national strategy. But, you know, they're not pulling out of the state and you're definitely not going to hear the last of them. They have quite a bit of money reserved uh, in the future. And the Biden campaign, likewise, is planning some big investments in Michigan in the next few months. But, you know, I think a lot of people are in the same position you are, John. They went on vacation. They're hanging out with their families. You know, maybe they're not as, as tuned in up until this point. And so, uh, you know, there's there's not a whole lot to lose by pulling off the TV right now. And there's a lot of PACs and other independent political groups that have stepped in to fill that void, too. So we'll see. You're, you're going to be hit with plenty of ads in the next couple of months here. Well, there's a lot to unpack with what you just said. So we can we can start with I want the very first thing you mentioned was uh, the new campaign manager. And I know that in your article, um, which I will include in our my column this week, and we can put in the podcast notes. But the spokesman for Trump in Michigan said, you know, we're just loading the cannons up for later. Uh, we're not going away. You know, they're very confident they'll take the state, yada, yada, yada. So how much of this is just, as you said, a pause for strategic, and it's summer and people are vacationing. But what are the, you know, chances that also they're reassessing the electoral map and conceding Michigan, which, of course, uh, Trump opponents say, you know, is probably the case. I would be hesitant to say that they are giving up on Michigan at this point. Um, so, well, Trump appears to be lagging in polling in Michigan. This is similar to the situation we saw in 2016. Uh, we saw Hillary Clinton leading by similar margins, double digits, up until the last months of the election. And there was only one pollster that had accurately predicted Trump would win. So if you you know bring up this idea to anyone involved in the Trump campaign, it, it looks like you guys are, you know, in trouble in Michigan. What are you going to do about that? Uh, you know, they they seem to think that polling doesn't really show the, the true picture of what's happening here in our state. And there are some troubles with polling in Michigan. It's it's a complicated science. And uh, you know, there's been some questions about whether polls accurately reflect reflect the true picture of Trump voters. Sometimes it's harder to get a hold of them for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, if anything, the Trump campaign is doubling down in its physical ground presence here in the state. 
So while you may not see Trump on the TV, you might see his people knocking on the door. They've been around knocking on doors since June. They've opened up uh, campaign offices across the state. And not even just in the big population centers that you would have expected. They've been in Detroit. They've been in Grand Rapids. They've been in Flint, Lansing, and all these places for, for months now. But now they're opening up campaign offices in the metro Detroit area, places like, you know, kind of Troy and Sterling Heights area and the Macomb County area, even up in the UP uh, in Marquette County, which is traditionally a Democratic voting county. But the UP as a whole has, has kind of trended more Republican in recent years. So they're trying to pick up some votes there. And organizers on the ground have contacted 4 million voters, which, I mean, that's a lot considering there are 7.7 million registered voters in Michigan. So they've, they've almost, I mean, they basically talked to half of the registered voters in Michigan already. Uh, and that's a pretty staggering number. I mean, that's, that's several orders of magnitude above where they were at in 16. And the Democrats have been beefing up their ground game as well. But, you know, to answer this question of, you're not seeing the investment in television. Does that mean the Trump campaign thinks they might be in trouble here and, and maybe they're giving up on Michigan? I'm not really seeing that on the ground. I think they're going to fight pretty hard uh, for our state. The RNC director is is from Michigan, uh, Ronna McDaniel. She's a Michigan native, and she was, by all accounts, promoted to her position in part because of her uh, insistence that the Trump campaign fight for Michigan in 2016. And so she was kind of elevated by realizing that they they could win the state. And I, I think it's one that she really wants to hang on to and Republicans in general. Michigan has a lot of symbolic value, I think, uh, for what the Republican Party wants to be in its message. So, uh, no, I, I don't think they're going to be giving up here. And while it appears that they are a little bit behind, uh, they're going to work pretty hard to make up the difference. You mentioned the polling in 2016. And, uh, you know, it's amazing that we're still are using polls. I'm, I'm sure things have been modified and they've, they've put in some factors now to try to learn from 2016. Obviously, polls are just educated guesses anyways. They're samples. And there's a lot of things that cannot be accounted for or weren't accounted for. Um, number one, how do you think that is affecting the, the mindset of both parties, but especially the Democrats? Um, there's almost like this fear factor, you know, um, Debbie Dingle, uh, they got the moniker Debbie Downer because she keeps telling them not to not to fall asleep on Trump, you know, that it don't take things for granted. But, you know, tactically, strategically, if the polls are uh, uh, can be, you know, suspect, what are the Democrats doing different here in Michigan um, with their campaign for 2020 to try to make sure that not that, you know, it doesn't happen again sort of thing, but rather that they have more insight into what's happening on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it. nobody's trusting the polls, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Um, everyone's learned the lesson of 16 that you can't just take those numbers for granted. Um, and, and Democrats have done a lot more in this cycle to spread out across the state. They've uh, beefed up their local offices in all 83 counties. This is an effort that started pretty much right after the 16 election. You saw some of the fruits of that labor in 2018, where Democrats won in a lot of statewide races and had a lot of success here in Michigan. Um, and so they're they're getting on the ground. They're, they're not necessarily trusting a lot of the polls. I don't see them touting internal polling that they're doing when they're talking to reporters either as a way to get a picture of of kind of what's happening here. And I think they're relying more on a get out the vote initiative more than taking just assuming that, that people are going to come out because this is an impactful election and, and Democratic voters are motivated to come and and try to oust Trump from the White House. 
But this election is going to be conducted very differently between COVID, between absentee voting and the push uh, for mail-in voting. Um, they're putting more resources, not necessarily into getting a, a sense for where the, the electorate is leaning, uh, more so they're putting that time and energy into get out the vote efforts, making sure people know how to get an absentee ballot, making sure people are involved in their local elections uh, today, for example, and you know the, the more local elections that happened earlier this year so that they, they know what they're doing. But I think the bottom line is nobody's trusting the polls uh, and Democrats aren't necessarily relying on that as a way to uh, to get a, a sense of how they're doing. And you mentioned Debbie Dingell. There's been several uh, House Democrats here in our state that have been warning, have been, you know, uh, raising the alarm that you shouldn't take Michigan for granted. You shouldn't trust these polls. You you need to stay here until the end. One of the criticisms I continue to hear about the 16 campaign is, you know, the, the DNC and Hillary's campaign felt that they had Michigan locked up. And so they pulled resources out at the last minute. And so we'll see what happens at the national level. If, if maybe we, if this polling continues, that is going to have an impact on the spending decisions that get made. And, you know, campaigns are all about resources and where you spend those resources. So you have to be seeing what happens there. But at least the organizers here in the state, the Democrats are uh, not looking at these polls as an indicator of how hard they need to step on the gas. I'd like to always plug our Emmy-winning series, How We Got Here. Um, we is a series of videos about Michigan policy issues that um, this year, six videos and four of them won Emmy Awards. So I will link to that in my, uh, in my column as well. But one of them was called Trump Country, and it explored how Michigan, even though it traditionally leans Democrat and hadn't gone Republican in 30 years, uh, flipped the way it did, especially when you had such a you know, unconventional candidate for the Republicans. Um, and it's a lot of insights in there, but it, it also shows that there are different factions of voters in, in Michigan that you can't take for granted. Um, one I think that, that the Democrats did take for granted is the black population in, in largely minority cities like Detroit and Flint and, and so forth, Pontiac, um, that when Obama ran, uh, was money in the bank. I think nationally, something like 97% of black voters voted for Obama, um, which may not be a surprise, but it wasn't so much they were against, the, you know, they defected from the Democrats, they just didn't vote in 2016. They, uh, it, was, it was really a shocking number uh, that stayed home compared to when Obama was running. So what specifically do you think the Democrats or even the Republicans, I mean, what are they doing to try to get out uh, minority voters and, and those kind of areas? Uh, I, I think, first of all, you're, you're right. Um, Democrats realize that they need to do more to get these voters out uh, and, and not just assume that they're going to support the Democratic nominee. Um, one wrinkle to the, the change in turnout from 12 to 16 that is worth noting, and, and Democrats always try to highlight to me when we talk about black turnout is, you know, Barack Obama was a, a once in a generation candidate for a lot of people. Um, the first black president having the opportunity to vote for uh, for him twice, uh, you know, created a level of turnout that may be tough to replicate in any future election. Uh, and there were Clinton supporters in Michigan who had assumed that she would be able to engender the same amount of support from black voters that Barack Obama did. And, and that just turned out to be pretty unrealistic. 
But, um, you know, it's interesting. You you have these large counties like uh, like Wayne that is, you know, Wayne and, and uh, Genesee to a lesser extent where a, a majority of Michigan's black voters are concentrated. So huge dips in turnout from, from 12 to 16. Uh, and I think part of that was just they weren't engaged with the candidates. Um, you know, we saw a lot of white voters vote third party. Uh, but in this case, it seems like a lot of black voters just decided not to participate at all. This has been given uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, animus from the protest movement that we've been seeing. There, there's been more energy uh, from the black community um, realizing, uh, I think, that you, know, you, you have to connect these social movements to the ballot box on election day. And so that's been a big push that Maybe we didn't see in, in Ferguson and some of those other movements where activists and organizers on the ground are pushing that message that, that you actually need to go and, and vote as well to make some change. So I think we'll see a lot more engagement from black voters generally um, because the president appears to be unpopular with that particular group of voters. So pundits and pollsters do a lot to try to figure out what motivates voters, what, what's their top issue that actually gets them to go out and, and cast a ballot. And consistently, one of the, the top ranking things for black voters is defeating Donald Trump. That, that's motivating people to actually get out there. I think because of that fact alone, you're, you're going to see more, you're going to see a rise in turnout. Joe Biden himself is very popular among black voters. It could be argued that he won the Democratic nomination uh, due to his support among black voters. And they certainly helped propel him in the primary when he was having a tough time. The votes that he was able to gather in South Carolina, for example, helped kind of put him back at the top uh, of the Democratic field. And he's got a lot of support in Detroit. So I don't think, you know, on its face, it seems like the, the Democrats may not have as much of a problem uh, just because of the candidate that they're running. Uh, Joe Biden is, is trusted and known in, in black communities in a way that Hillary Clinton just wasn't. Um, but there's also been a lot more effort to get into these communities and try to understand what motivates them and why they dropped off last time around. On the other end of things, the Trump campaign also sees an opportunity to come into Detroit uh, and other places and uh, attract black voters who may be feeling disillusioned with the Democratic Party, who feel that, you know, for for all the years of loyalty um, that that demographic has had, the Democrats maybe have not produced much for them. Um, and Early in the election, I think it was around October last fall, the Trump campaign opened up an office in Detroit focused on black voters. And, and we all kind of took that as interesting, maybe a little unusual. It's not something that we've necessarily seen Republican candidates do before in Detroit. Um, unfortunately, I think for the president, some of the messages he has for black voters has been undermined a little bit because of the COVID situation and the protests. Some of the things that you would mainly hear the president argue is, you know, unemployment for minorities is at an all-time low. Um, you know, really kind of pushing that that message that with the the Trump economy, it raises up all boats. Well, you know, unfortunately, we're coming out of a historic recession. Uh, African Americans and, and other minority groups were hit a lot harder than white voters, so they're doing a lot worse under those circumstances. And obviously, the the COVID pandemic has had a disproportionate effect on African-Americans um, and, you know, killed and infected more of them than a lot of other groups in the country. Um, I think the, the Trump uh, attempt to reach out to black voters is possibly hammered a little bit by his response to the, the protests. Um, 
there are those in the activist community that feel that he's been a little too heavy handed with cracking down on some of these and the rhetoric around uh, the protests that have occurred. So they're not necessarily seeing him as an ally in police reform. And as the president positions himself as the law and order candidate, again, uh, it might be tough to win over some of those skeptical uh, black voters. But I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to talk about any demographic group as a monolith. Obviously, there's a lot of different reasons that uh, that black and vote, black and white and Asian and Hispanic voters all come out on Election Day. And there are certainly Republicans in that group, but it you know it appears pretty tough. Uh, I think for the president to win over a sizable majority of African Americans in Michigan in sixteen, he had said that uh, he would win ninety seven percent of the black vote. I believe if he uh, were running for a second term, and uh, that just doesn't appear possible in any reality. So, so mentioning Biden, what's the calculus in your view on the VP? Because our governors. Uh, supposedly in the mix. It, it doesn't seem to me that that's likely, um, given what all that you just talked about because of the calculus on getting getting the vote out and so forth. Um, how do you see it from your perspective? And I know an announcement, I think he says coming in August. So, Yeah, we should find out uh, in the next couple of days here, uh, maybe, maybe even by the time this podcast comes up. Um, I, I think you're right. I, I think Governor Whitmer is not likely. I mean, it makes sense that she's in in the running. Um, her national profile has been raised through her handling of the the pandemic, and she was chosen by Nancy Pelosi to deliver the uh, Democratic rebuttal to the President's State of the Union address earlier this year. So she's she certainly seems to be a rising star in the Democratic par- uh, Party. But you know, with everything that's going on in Michigan right now, we're still among one of the most challenged states when it comes to COVID. I just don't think it would make a lot of sense for her to to leave all that behind to go hit the campaign trail. Um, and she's about halfway through her first term, a little bit more than halfway through her first term. And, um, you know, there's a lot that she hasn't accomplished yet. And I, I get the feeling that they may want her to stay. Um, Biden has uh, said that he wants a, a younger, uh, a female and, and probably African-American uh, person to run with him on the ticket. Um, I, you know, based on everything we just talked about, I think that's an attempt to appeal to some of those demographics that he's going to need uh, to be more enthusiastic and come out to vote. Um, Stacey Abrams has been uh, a surrogate for him. She was uh, she's a voting rights activist now, primarily, but uh, was the first African American woman to run for or to be selected as a major party nominee uh, in Georgia as the gubernatorial, gubernatorial candidate. Um, she lost that election, but has since kind of had a second career as a, a voting rights activist and has been traveling around the country uh, doing that. She, her name has been tossed around. She's actually appeared in Michigan a few times for Joe Biden. So Stacey Abrams, uh, Susan Rice is another name that's that's floated around that seems to fit that bill. Um, Kamala Harris uh, is another uh, contender, it appears. They, uh, Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden had clashed at some of the early debates. So we'll have to put some of that behind them, I think, if they're going to work together. But Joe Biden has indicated that he's he's happy to do that. So, you know, I'm not sure. I don't have a, a personal power ranking uh, about how this is all going to turn out. But I think it makes sense that he would try to get someone who's younger and, and a person of color uh, to make that contrast with uh, the Republican ticket, where you have two older white men. I think a lot of Democrats would be disappointed if they also had the choice between another, you know, two older white men. So uh, Biden picking someone who's who's younger, maybe a little more 
savvy in, in talking to younger voters who Biden has a, a hard time with and able to connect to uh, people of color, I, I think makes a lot of sense. So we'll see. So one thing about Trump that, I mean, everybody knows that Trump says a lot of things, says a lot of things they find to be crazy or compelling or out there and they get alarmed by it. But one thing about Donald Trump, if you go back to his Twitter thread to when Twitter started, he's always saying crazy things and provocative things. But the things people are reacting to in recent weeks have been his suggestions that the election may be delayed uh, and also that uh, mail-in voting is rigged, even though he's voted mail-in the last two elections. On those two counts, how much of that is, is stake and how much of that is just a sizzle that you get uh, coming off Donald Trump all the time? Yeah, it's hard to tell. And you always got to look at the timing of, of these kinds of statements, too. The the day that he suggested perhaps moving the, the day of the election, there was some really bad economic news that came out. So, you know, putting on my tinfoil hat, perhaps that's a way to distract from some bad news that's happening. There doesn't seem to be any real support for it in Congress moving the date of the election, which is something that Congress has the power over. President Trump can't move the date of the election on his own. Um, so I, I think that's pretty unlikely to happen. Um, here in Michigan, the, the Secretary of State sent out absentee applications to every registered voter, that 7.7 million, million number that we keep coming back to, um, which is a little different than states like California that actually sent ballots out to to voters. Uh, we only got the applications, so there's still a process to go through there. Um, you know, there, there really hasn't been any concrete evidence that an increase in mail-in voting leads to any kind of widespread fraud. As it is right now, election fraud is very rare. Uh, when it happens, it's, it's usually prosecuted and, and very rarely has an impact on the outcome of an election. Unless we're talking about really small local elections, it certainly hasn't decided any presidential elections to my knowledge. So, you know, a lot of the president's attacks on mail-in voting seem to be political. You know, it, it seems to be a way that Democrats are promoting as a, as a safer alternative to actually going out on the polls, but it also lets people vote, uh, it lets more people vote and, and arguably, you know, makes it easier for people to vote. Now we'll see, I mean, I, I don't know if everyone understands the mail system and and how to, you know, apply for a ballot and receive one in the mail and and the mail system itself might cause problems with, with ballots showing up too late on election day. Here in Michigan, they need to be in the clerk's hands by 8 p.m. So, it could be a matter of sending your, your ballot a day late and it, you know, your vote doesn't get counted. So there's there's certainly a lot of issues and, uh, you know, skepticism with how smoothly this election is going to be run. We'll see what happens tonight. We're expecting not to get results until the next day or, or maybe a day later. Well, um, I'm a but journalist. that's quite different than fraud. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a totally kind of separate issue from people actually changing the outcome of an election. And so... You know, some of the president's rhetoric around that, I, I think, is widely seen as, as a political calculus. I mean, even if you take Trump out of the mix, I'm a, I'm a journalist who was working during uh, uh, Bush Gore in 2000. And it was the only I mean, you go home as a journalist, you don't go home until everything's done. Right. You eat your pizza and at 6 a.m. you groggily go home. Uh, that that lasted for a month you know, after the election. So it's not like there's no precedent for. I mean, COVID is unprecedented, but if, if there are complications, it doesn't mean that the Constitution has to be thrown out. And, you know, somebody we become an, uh, uh, we have an emperor now. <laughs> it's like, I think we probably have enough uh, uh, strength in our, our systems, institutions to get through it. So one would hope. 
this is kind of an apples to oranges situation, but uh, comparison. But you know, we voted during the Civil War. Uh, we voted during World War II. All the GIs that were overseas sent absent ballots, you know, across the ocean. And so we've we've been in situations like this before, challenging times. And uh, America has been able to hold free and fair elections, and one would hope that we're able to do that again. Well, Malachi, it's been great having you here today. And these are some great insights. And obviously, with $50 million of loaded TV ad cannons pointing our direction, (laughs) I might want to get out this fall and play more golf. Um, But today, I have to go out and find a I voted sticker, put on my mask and get out there. Um, I hope everybody who's listening did, too and also participates in our democracy this fall. Uh, if you're a fan of politics, uh, as weird as it might be and crazy, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting time uh, for Americans. So thank you again, Malachi. And again, Eric, as always, thank you. And I look forward to next week's episode of Behind the Headlines. And there they go. Thanks to Malachi Barrett for joining the show and John Heiner, as always, for being my co-host. If you like the podcast, you can do us a couple of favors. One, you can put it into a playlist on Spotify, or you can rate and review it wherever you get your podcast so more people can discover it. And if you love what we're doing, share it with a friend. As always, I'm Eric Hulkerin. He's John Heiner, and this is Behind the Headlines.